This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We'd uh, like to start out today's show by noting that we are anticipating some wonderful guests that will be joining us uh, later this month, starting, we hope, with Huel Hauser, who did a trip to UC Davis some weeks back, and will be airing uh, that visit on uh, on KVIE uh, next Thursday, I believe, at 8 p.m. You've uh, no doubt seen his road trip show, which airs on uh, KVIE, and uh, we're we're big fans of what he does, and we're pleased that he came here to UC Davis, and 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 again, we hope that we'll be speaking with him on next week's program uh, prior to the airing of that show. A man we're considerably less certain about getting, but we're certainly going to give it the old college try, is going to be Congressman Ron Paul, who is stirring up things on the Republican side of the presidential le- ledger. We've always admired Ron Paul for his libertarian stance in Congress uh, and the fact that he is uh, an unabashed critic of the ongoing fiasco over in Iraq. We hope also in a future installment of the program to bring you a book by astronomer Alan W. Hirschfeld, which is titled provocatively, Parallax, The Race to Measure the Cosmos. We, uh, we just like the title. No, actually, uh, we've always liked the metaphor of parallax. That's why we named our damn show after it. And, uh, and how they first measured the distances to the stars is really quite an interesting uh, scientific tale. And Alan Hirschfeld does a great job in his book, and we hope very much to have him come and tell you that story in the weeks to come. And finally, we're going to make an effort to bring you Chalmers Johnson, uh, ex-CIA member whose books include the best-selling Blowback and Sorrows of Empire. His most recent book, Nemesis, The Last Days of the American Republic, is uh, widely hailed by uh, well, my immediate circle of friends. And uh, we would like to bring him on the show as well. Now, Franz uh, Cassing apparently has him booked, and we'll be bringing him to KDVS before us, I believe, on Monday. So be sure to tune in to It's About You at 8.30 on Monday morning. And knowing what we do about what Mr. Uh, Mr. Johnson has to say about, uh, about foreign affairs, we, we sure, we're pretty sure we won't overdose you with him because he's got a lot to talk about. Later on in this program, we're going to talk to a, a blogger who wrote an excellent review of an event we attended last Thursday in Los Angeles, a very memorable tribute to the immortal Mort Saul. Mort just uh, turned 80 last month. He is a legend of comedy, changed how, uh, how political comedy was done here in America, and has been, uh, we would say, an influence for this program. The blogger in question is named Mark Evanier. We didn't know Mark from Adam uh, until a few days back, but we liked what he had to say about this event, gave him a call, as, as one can do when you have a radio show, and, uh, and he'll be talking with us in segment two about, uh, about this event and more. And perhaps you caught the Nova episode, which aired on KVIE this week, titled This Old Pyramid. This program uh, featured Egyptologist Mark Lehner was one of the founders of the Ancient Egypt Research Associates. We're going to speak with one of his uh, co-founders. That would be Matthew McCauley, later, I believe, in this segment. On this date in history, which is July 5th in 1687, surely a red-letter day for science, 
The Royal Society in England publishes Isaac Newton's Principia, one of the most important publications in the history of science. It states Newton's three laws of motion and the universal law of gravitation. We're looking forward to talking a little bit about uh, Sir Isaac and Principia when we get Alan Hirschfeld on the program. On July 5, 1933, Fritz Tott is appointed General Inspector for German Highways and is assigned to build a comprehensive Autobahn system. The Autobahns became the envy of the industrialized world and a source of both anxiety and awe for Europeans. And on July 5, 1942, Ian Fleming became the first graduate of a training school for spies in Canada known as Special 25. The training proved invaluable for the creation of his fictional spy, James Bond. Our quote of the day comes from one of the participants in the tribute to, to Mort Saul uh, last week. This is from the immortal George Carlin. We like this one. George Carlin said, Life is not measured by the number of breaths we take, but by the moments that take our breath away. Our quip of the day comes, oddly enough, from quantum physicist Wolfgang Pauli, who once said, Physics is very muddled again at the moment. It's much too hard for me anyway, and I wish I were a movie comedian or something like that and had never heard anything about physics. Wolfgang Pauli was, of course, the author of his principle, which stated that two electrons orbiting in the same orbital have to have opposite spins. But then you knew that. And if I got that wrong, I'm sure I'm going to get letters, but I think that's right. Our bonus quip of the day comes from Jan L.A. Vandeschnepschut, which I guess is a real name. We attributed this quote previously to Anonymous, which is as follows. In theory, there's no difference between theory and practice. But in practice, there is. And we think those are words to live by. Our statistic of the day comes from a recent Newsweek poll, which shows that George W. Bush's approval rating is at 26% making him the least popular U.S. president since Richard M. Nixon. And in the wake of his, uh, his outrageous pardon of I, Scooter Libby, we hope it gets pushed down into the teens. And ladies and gentlemen, uh, this was done this week during the 4th of July holiday to kind of have us all sort of wave flags and forget about the just, just the horribleness of this, of this pardon. It is time to impeach. It's time to impeach Bush and Cheney. You know, I don't think Nancy Pelosi would be such a bad president. And by the way, we don't have time to talk about Michael Moore's uh, sicko on this week's program, but uh, I did get a chance to see it. It is excellent. It is his best film to date. And uh, I think that uh, one point he makes at the end of it is, you know, as long as America is kept scared, we're not going to demand changes that we need to see. And Americans are scared. We're pleased to see this movie is getting excellent reviews. It deserves them. Uh, I did note the New Republic, you know, that icon of the right. <laughs> their comment was, according to Jonathan Cohn writing in The New Republic, I only wish it were highly accurate. Though Moore gets most of the big things right, he gets many details wrong. <laughs> now, there, there's a scathing indictment. He's got the big picture correct, but, you know, many of the points we could niggle about. Actually, I would say that uh, Radio Parallax, if for once, is in agreement with the New Republic on that. He does get a few details wrong, as far as we know, but uh, does he get the big things right? 
Yes, he does. And isn't that what's important? All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, this week was a good week for doing the heavy lifting after health officials in Canada unveiled an ambulance designed to accommodate the growing number of morbidly obese people. The vehicle features an extra-wide stretcher and a hydraulic crane that can lift invalids weighing up to 1,000 pounds. And no, we are not able to confirm whether American tourists have had something to do with this innovation. Last week was uh, ranked a bad week for Takeru Tsunami Kobayashi of Japan, who's described as the world champion of competitive eating. He's been diagnosed now with jaw arthritis, which for him is a career-threatening condition. Reported the magazine, Kobayashi, age 29, once ate 53 hot dogs in a competition and 97 hamburgers in another. Radio Parallax agrees with comedian George Carlin on this one. Competitive eating is not a sport. It's one of the seven deadly sins. Competitive eating is gluttony. It's disgusting. Uh... Uh, well, you know, I'd like to say that I'm sorry that Mr. Kobayashi has to has to give up the fight, but uh, but I'm I'm not. And finally, it was an ugly week this week for sticking to the rules. After the manager of a Miami Wendy's refused to give a customer more than ten packets of chili sauce and was then shot several times in the arm. Wendy's company policy, the manager tried to explain before his angry assailant fled, limits customers to only three packets of chili sauce. Anyway, that's the good, the bad, and the ugly. really like the week magazine it really helps us shape this program they often have items that uh, you know we we'd file away from another source and boy there it is in the magazine uh, once again reminding us that we need to tell you about it they have a section called controversy of the week this current issues controversy was cheney has he gone too far Apparently, the vice president's arrogance uh, sort of irked people at USA Today, not exactly a flaming left-wing publication, who noted in their editorial that uh, Cheney was refusing to obey President Bush's executive order 12958, which compels White House personnel to regularly inform the National Archives about material they've classified. And certainly, it's a legitimate question to ask, has he gone too far when Cheney's office claimed that it's not, quote, an entity within the executive branch, unquote, and so is not governed by George Bush's order. But here, here's the part I like. Since the vice president also serves as president of the Senate, Cheney argues, he belongs neither to the executive branch nor the legislative and thus is not bound by the rules of either. Of course, this compares to last week's controversy of the week, Iraq. Is the war still winnable? My question is, 
still still winnable? Was it ever winnable? We would argue in this program and have done so many times in the past. No, it was not. Anyway, between Dick Cheney thinking he's the fourth branch of government and the ongoing, uh, you know, uh, morass in the Middle East, it does appear that liberalism is making a comeback. The right's been saying for so long that America is a conservative nation that everyone uh, seems to be buying into it or, you know, accepting it. But activist groups, Media Matters for America, and the Campaign for America's Future analyzed dozens of polls from nonpartisan organizations like Gallup and Pew. And on every critical issue, America leans to the left. Abortion? 62% of Americans oppose overturning Roe v. Wade. Stem cells? 61% of Americans support using them for research. Gun control? 60% of Americans want more of it. Noted Leonard Pitts in the Miami Herald, the word liberal may have been successfully demonized, but the views that label represents remain highly popular. You know, we, we should give some credit to uh, some of the Senate Republicans. Uh, article by Renee Schnuff and Margaret Talov from the McClatchy Washington Bureau in, in the Sacramento Bee a few days back noted that um, the, the call has gone out for the White House to begin withdrawing most U.S. troops from Iraq, you know, from some senators. Apparently the day after Senator Richard Lugar of Indiana, the top Republican on the Foreign Relations Committee, bluntly declared the President Bush's Iraq plan isn't working and called for withdrawal of most American forces. Senator George Voinovich, Republican Ohio, said he was writing to Bush on Tuesday to urge him to embrace a plan for exit. Republican Senators John Warner of Virginia and Susan Collins of Maine said that Luger's comments would carry weight with fellow Republicans. Well, we hope so. You know, I think we just mentioned in passing a couple weeks back, we need to mention it, well, at least in passing again, that, uh, you know, it was revealed a couple of weeks back in the B that uh, Karl Rove sent more than 140,000 emails through the Republican National Committee's computer system, thus circumventing a federal law intended to guarantee the preservation of presidential records. Note of the article, 140,000 of Rove's emails have been preserved but then emails from 51 of the 88 White House aides who use this back-channel message system appear to have been destroyed. Anyway, let's talk a little bit about, uh, about Mort Saul, which we're going to do here in our second segment. But uh, Mort Saul himself pointed out at, uh, at his event last Thursday that uh, the news we're getting has had an interesting new slant on it of late. An example of which was from an article I was saving from about a week ago uh, from the Associated Press. Headline, U.S. Iraqi troops sweep through besieged city. Subheadline, discovery of hospital displays al-Qaeda's support network. In the first paragraph, it notes that uh, American helicopters killed 17 al-Qaeda gunmen trying to sneak past a checkpoint. Mortsall asked the question, have you noticed how they're referring to the insurgents in Iraq now as al-Qaeda? Well, Mort Saul wasn't the only one to notice this. Uh, Frank Rich in the New York Times said that for four years, the Bush administration has insisted that victory was just around the corner. The latest installment of that fairy tale is that the surge of 30,000 additional troops and the new commander, General David Petraeus, uh, is going to show results by September, except then the White House then started backing away from that target month. Frank Rich noted that the Pentagon has launched a new propaganda offensive withholding statistics on the sharp increase of attacks in Baghdad's supposedly secure green zone. But uh, going along with the 
Pentagon's propaganda offensive would be Jack Kelly in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, who said as follows, You probably didn't know this, but U.S. troops are currently fighting the biggest and most important battle of the Iraq war so far. Several thousand hardcore al-Qaeda fighters have been chased out of Baghdad and have fled to Iraq's Diyala province, and 10,000 coalition troops are closing in to finish them off. If the operation, Arrowhead Ripper, succeeds, it would prove decisive in the war to stabilize Iraq, which may explain why the mainstream media is hardly mentioning it. Most editors and pundits are now so committed to the narrative of Iraq as an epic bungled disaster that they treat good news from Iraq as no news. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. If those damn critics of the war would just shut up, we could win this thing. It's all that nattering going on over here that's, that's crippling the war effort. Anyway, uh, let's talk a little bit about Mort Saul in our second segment. We'll get out in a minute here. Before I go, I want to note uh, that, um, well, let, let's quote from Albert uh, Brooks, who said about Mr. Saul when he became a prominent uh, comedic figure in the late 1950s, he helped break the mold for stand-up comedy, taking it from the world of Henny Youngman and butta-boom one-liners to a topical form in which comics suddenly began talking about things that mattered. Said Brooks, every comedian who's not doing wife jokes has him to thank for that. He really was the first, even before Lenny Bruce, in terms of talking about stuff, not just doing punchlines. In fact, let's go out here with uh, some quotes from Answers.com. Mort Saul was arguably the most influential comedian of the post-war era, a provocative political satirist. He single-handedly revolutionized the comedy medium to create an art form with a scope and impact far beyond mere slapstick and gags. Mort Saul's conversational free associative style, an amalgam of anecdotes, one-liners, and pithy asides, forever elevated the stand-up stage from its humble, toothless beginnings into a respected forum for eye-opening social commentary and in the process, open the door for future legends ranging from Lenny Bruce to George Carlin to Woody Allen. Saul appeared on stage dressed in his trademark sweater, a rolled-up newspaper clenched tightly in his hand. His act was free-form and tense, veering between clever, endearing topical jabs and vicious swipes. His routines knew no partisanship, attacking liberals and conservatives alike with equal furor. Both Richard Nixon and Adlai Stevenson were targets of his 1958 debut record, the Future Lies Ahead, a jittery, far-ranging affair which also tackled topics ranging from air raids to Dave Brubeck to his famed intellectual hold-up bit, which, which I believe he has the, uh, the stick-up artist go into the bank and hand a note to the teller that says, act naturally. And the teller responds with, define your terms. Anyway, we got to take a break. Just go. With my, I think it was my favorite uh, favorite Mortsall one-liner <laughs> describing Werner von Braun. He said he aimed for the stars and sometimes hit London. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. We'll be back in a moment. Stay tuned.
Last uh, Thursday night, we were privileged to be able to, to attend the All-Star Salute to Mort Saul, which took place on the famous comedian's uh, 80th birthday in Brentwood. Uh, it was a very interesting event on so many respects, and I was looking for someone uh, to have covered it adequately in the media. And uh, we found our man with uh, the blog site of Mark Evanier. He did such a great job in summarizing the event, we thought we would just give him a call and ask him on the show, and happily he's agreed to join us. So, we'd like to say welcome to Radio Parallax, Mark Evanier. I'm thrilled to be here. Now, Mark, let's uh, tell me a little bit about, about your site. I'm looking at it. I sort of stumbled on it, looking for coverage on Mort Saul. It says that uh, it's described as News From Me, a web blog about TV, movies, comics, theater, news, politics, and other forms of fantasy. Basically, anything I'm thinking about at the moment, I put up there, <laughs> which is basically what a weblog is. Well, you're our kind of guy. We especially like politics and other forms of fantasy. <laughs> Good line. Well, and your background is in, sounds like, all the above. Well, I write television. I write comic books. I write cartoons. I write movies. I write books. I, I, I subscribe to the philosophy that if you do enough different things, you don't have to do any of them well. <laughs> So it says that you're the official website for Pogo, Walt Kelly's Pogo? Uh, I run the official website for Walt Kelly's Pogo, yes. Okay, so you're really embedded with the comics people. That's correct. All right, well, Mark, I, I cold called you, and not knowing anything much about you. Can you I, I think your background sounds pretty, pretty provocative. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you've done the past few decades? Oh, boy. Well, um, in television, I wrote a lot of, lot of live-action TV shows. I wrote Welcome Back, Cotter. I wrote Love Boat. I wrote Cheers. I wrote all the variety shows that Sid and Marty Croft did for about 15 years. I wrote, uh, I wrote the, the, the unsuccessful Bob Newhart sitcom. You know, he, <laughs> he, he had to do one that flopped, and I was on that one. And uh, in animation, I've been writing most of the Garfield cat cartoons for the last uh, 15 years or so. I wrote Before that, I wrote Scooby-Doo and... Plastic Man and Dungeons and Dragons and and uh, a very long list of shows and in comic books, the, the main thing I'm doing at the moment is a book called Grew the Wanderer, which I've been doing with a man named Sergio Aragonés for 25 years as of this year. In fact, today I'm working on the 25th anniversary issue. Now, as I recall from my Mad Magazine days, Sergio Aragonés uh, has been an illustrator for used to be for them from way back. He, he still is. He's in every issue. He's been in every issue but one since 1964. Wow. And you can read all about this in a book called Mad Art, which is a book I wrote, which is being selling, sold cheap on Amazon right now about the history of Mad Magazine. Well, I'm sure some of our listeners will want to want to do just that. When, when I first called you up to, to ask about your connection to the Mort Saul event, you surprised me by talking about the fact that you were, were writing some of the comedy back for some of the participants, uh, sounds like, back in the late 70s. Well, I wrote for stand-up comics in the late 70s, about, from about mid-70s to late 70s. Stand, writing for stand-up comedians is one of the worst jobs in the world. It, it's, <laughs> Why? It's, well, it, first of all, you know, it, it's, it's like the equivalent of being in the circus doing a very dangerous stunt. When you fail, everybody <laughs> sees this, and you die a horrendous public death. And also, it doesn't pay very well, and you have to sit around the com back at the comedy store until 2 a.m., uh, haggling with comedians over over fees and prices, and it's it's just. I mean, I did it for a while just for fun, and and it wasn't that much fun. Uh. I stopped doing it the minute I had something better to do with my time. But but I did it for a while, and and I guess it was an interesting experience. It's very, it's very enlightening as a writer to write something and fail so spectacularly that you you can't argue the point. <laughs> so you then have to learn to turn loose of things and write something else. 
Just out of curiosity, what did a joke go for back in, say, 1979? Oh, 25 bucks to 50 It depends on the, depend on the comedian. That, that was actually the problem, which is, like, you give a, a bunch of jokes to a comedian, and they didn't want to pay you out of pocket. So they'd say, well, look, tell you what, if I use it on Griffin, I'll give you 10 bucks. If I use it on Griffin and Carson, I'll give you 25 bucks. If I only use it on Carson, I'll give you 15 And you, you go and you start haggling, and, 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 and then they don't pay you anyway. So uh, I stopped doing it. Uh, actually, for a while, I was writing jokes for free. I was working, making enough money doing other kind of writing that I would approach comedians I liked and basically say to them, here, here's a free bit. If you use it, you owe me a favor. If you don't use it, then I get it back and I can give it to somebody else. And, and they, people didn't quite understand that at first, but they liked the, the, the no-pay part. And uh, that worked out all right for me, and, you know, and, to this day, I still occasionally call in one of those favors for jokes I wrote, you know, in the 70s for someone. Or, or it's a nice credit to be able. To, it was a nice credit to be able to say, when I was starting as a TV writer, to walk in and say, "Hey, did you see that guy on Carson last night? I wrote three of his jokes." <laughs> well, so you're eminently qualified, I think, to judge uh, what took place on Thursday night. Uh, and and I really liked your summary. We should we should tell people that this was yeah this was really a rare assemblage of of really blue chip comedy talent. Uh, let's kind of go over some of the people. You, you kind of reviewed some of the performances that, that, were, that were there last night. Well, first, let's just go over the list. Well, the list, I, I, the list was Jonathan Winters, Shelley Berman, Albert Brooks, Drew Carey, George Carlin, Norm Crosby, Jay Leno, Richard Lewis, Bill Maher, Kevin Nealon, Paula Poundstone, and the closing act was Mort Saul. Which is, by anybody's standards, uh, a pretty blue-chip lineup. You throw half those people off, you've still got a great show. Well, everybody was there, I think, for a common cause. Mort Saul, back in like the in the 1960s, sort of changed the face of comedy from sort of uh, sort of the henny youngman, you know, take my wife, please, to a guy that would make observations about what was going on. Something that everyone has, uh, I think, caught on and imitated ever since. One of the many things that Mort, not so much as invented, as popularized, was the idea that the comedian is more important than the joke. Before him. You know, Milton Berle was able to steal everybody's act because everyone's act was interchangeable. Mm-hmm. And there were comedians who did jokes about, you know, my wife is so fat, be- even though they had no wife or a skinny wife, it was just a joke, and it didn't really have to pertain to them. And Mort was the first guy, really, who became popular, who came out and did Mort Saul jokes. They were unique to his voice, they were from his point of view, and you were spending time with him as opposed to a guy who just rattled off a whole bunch of, of non-existent, unreal, written jokes. Let's talk a little bit about what happened on Thursday night. I was quite, uh, I was quite bl- blown away. I, I, I think you were too, judging yeah. by what you wrote. Uh, let's talk a bit about Albert Brooks. Yeah, Albert Brooks was amazing because Albert Brooks doesn't do stand-up anymore. I saw one of his last stand-up appearances, which I think probably would have been mid to low, maybe mid-70s, maybe. I don't remember exactly when it was. He was, he was getting out of it to try to become a filmmaker, mm-hmm. and, and he did one of his very last times he ever did that at a club in here in L.A., and he was brilliant, and he stopped doing it, and he was the only one there at that event the other night who couldn't get up there and do part of his current act. So he wrote a special piece for the <laughs> evening, and you forget how good that guy is on stage. It's been so long since we've seen it. Yes. We should explain. He came out and said, uh, you know, I do wish in the future they'd get a first-class publicist out there to at least, at least speak to the talent, because I thought... This was going to be a eulogy. And it turns out, here's Mort. He's alive in the second row. <laughs> yeah, and then he says, says, I don't have an act. All I've got is this eulogy, so I'm going to read it anyway. 
and and he you know he's such a good actor he convinced people for a moment there that he really was ticked off yes he yes and he starts reading this this saccharine phony uh, cliche filled eulogy which was very funny given the fact that Mort was you know sitting in the second row behind Hefner uh-huh. the way Hefner looked they could have used the eulogy for him but but uh, he, he it was just it was very funny and. The audience just felt that special tingle. This is, oh my God, this is Albert Brooks doing a bit of material that no one else will ever hear. Yes, indeed. If somebody outclassed Albert, I don't know if anybody truly did, but certainly his equal was the performance by Jay Leno. Jay Leno was amazing. Uh, it reminds you why that guy has done so well. He just came out and did, I guess it was about 10, 12 minutes of absolutely killer stand-up. Now, the, and the reverse there is, is that Albert Brooks was doing material that he wrote for that evening that he had probably never spoken never spoken in public before, uh, and he was very funny. Jay was out there doing tried and true bits that he's been doing in Vegas for years and doing at the Comedy and Magic Club, and he's got it polished to such a uh, degree, uh, rehearsed, and he's got every syllable of every joke honed to perfection, and he just came out and just killed. And then and then the the classy thing he did was he turned. Is set around. So at the end, he's talking about Mort, and everybody talked about Mort to some extent. But he gave this wonderful little talk about Mort at the end. And then when he left the stage, his applause for exiting was Mort's applause, not his own. He made it so that at the end, he kind of invited the audience to applaud for Mort Saul instead of applauding for Jay Leno. Yeah. Uh, and it was a very nice, warm moment, and it was very earnestly meant, I'm sure, because you know all these people were in some way thanking Mort whatever the, the personal things were. A lot of them talked about how he had helped their careers on an individual basis. But they were th- thanking him for pioneering this generation of stand-up comedy, for helping invent the form completely, which they've all used to make their livings over the years. Yeah, I noticed that the two people that really went especially out of their way to explain that to the audience were Woody Allen and George Carlin both, who talked about how influential Mort Saul was and what they went on to do subsequently. Yeah, and, and uh, Woody was on tape, you should tell your people. But those two guys talked personally about what, what Mort had done for them personally. Uh, and I love the fact that, that Mort saw Mitch now he, uh, when he was playing the Copa in New York, he got Dick Cavett and Woody Allen in to see him for free. Right. Uh, and, and Carlin um, talked about how when he was a beginning stand-up comedian, first working with Jack Burns and later when he went on as a solo, Mort was recommending him for jobs and Mort was advising him and, and helping him to establish himself in the business. You could very easily argue that George Carlin became a very strong competitor of Mort's. That didn't stop him. Mort still helped George Carlin establish himself. The big shock for me in the evening was seeing an old clip from circa 1962, George Carlin doing a Mort Saul impression that wasn't bad. No, it was pretty good, actually. George showed this clip of him doing uh, more. It was, it was 62, was it, I think? Yeah. Something and, like that. Yeah, it was, like, it was one of George's first TV bits as a, as a solo, solo performer. And it was amazing. Yeah, they, they, these guys go back for years, and uh, a lot of these people did. And that was the nice part of it. There were people there who'd known Mort all his life or most of his professional life, and there were people who just kind of came to him as as someone who had pioneered their business. So you had a nice cross section there. Well, it's certainly you could you could feel the love in the in the room. I think uh, yeah, as, as as trite as it might be to say that, I think it was it was a real thing. And when Mort came on to, to close the evening, I think everybody was just just thrilled. Yes, absolutely. It was it was a one of those evenings. Everybody was just at the end. People were milling around outside. They didn't want to leave. They didn't want to turn loose of the evening because it had been so magical. Indeed. 
Well, Mark, we appreciate uh, you sharing your thoughts with us. And, and if people want to read more, where should they go? Well, my website is www.newsfromme.com, all one word, newsfromme.com. And I put something up there every, you know, th- 20 minutes, it seems like, about what's going on in my life and what's happening. And if they scroll back a few days, they'll find uh, my comments on the Mort Saul Tribute. And uh, they may find something else they, they care to read there also. Yeah, you've got some great stuff about uh, Stan Freeberg, comic stuff, a whole, a whole cornucopia, and I, I would recommend your site to our listeners highly. I'm very good at things that don't make any money. You know? <laughs> well, we, that's why we're a natural partnership. Yes. <laughs> Mark Evanier, the blogger who brings us news from me uh, on a regular basis on the web. We would refer you again to his website, and thank you very much for speaking with us. Anytime, sir. All right, we've got about five minutes left here in our segment, so I think what I need to do is uh, take some excerpts from a bootleg copy of the Mort Saul event, which was sent to us by persons who shall remain nameless, and I think excerpt uh, some of the funnier comments from, uh, from that clandestine recording. Now, Larry King was the butt of numerous jokes that evening because he was supposed to be the host, the published literature said, hosted by Larry King, but... Larry evidently got caught up in the whole Paris Hilton interview brouhaha and stayed in New York or wherever he was to, uh, to handle the breaking story of his interview with Paris. This uh, caused Drew Carey to later remark, you know, so she's an heiress. She's a Hilton heiress. Is that, is that that big a deal? I mean, you know, if you stayed in a Hilton lately, I mean, it's not like she's Paris Ritz-Carlton. You know, she's somewhere above, you know, being Paris Travel Lodge. Carrie went on to remark about how, well, you know, I don't know what she's famous for. I mean, what about all the important women out there we should be honoring and talking about? People like Rosa Parks. He went on to note one of the unsung heroes of the civil rights movement, the white guy that asked her to get up. He said, you never hear about, you know, the, the true father of the civil rights movement on Black History Month. You know, without him, there'd probably be no NBA, no hip-hop, might not even be any jazz. Apparently, after doing this bit for a while, Drew Carey looked up the guy's name. His name was James Blick. And told the story that he alleged that actually 12 years earlier in 1943, James Blick was driving the same bus, picked up Rosa Parks. They had to basically pay in the front and then enter the back of the bus. She dropped her purse, was picking up the change, and he drove off and left her to walk five miles home in the rain. Which he said it was sure why 12 years later when he asked her to move to the back of the bus, she said, to hell with you. Don't know if it's true, but that's what Drew Carey had to say. Uh... His closing line was, was pretty funny. He said, you know, you ever hear this, this statement, you know, that if women ran the world, there'd be no war? Oh, yeah, sure, he said. No one would start a fight for no reason if women ran the world. Said he could see England being invaded. Well, wh- why are you invading us? Oh, I think you know the reason. George Carlin talked about, uh, about honoring uh, uh, Mort Saul, how much Mort had helped him. He pointed out that when... Uh, when Jack Parr left The Tonight Show in 1962, there was an interim period before which Johnny Carson became the permanent host. Mort Saul was one of the interim hosts of the program and said this is a time when he put George Carlin on the air, gave him his first national exposure, and really helped George Carlin get his career moving. Carlin showed a clip from that era where he was imitating Mort Saul. Uh, I think we mentioned that already. It was, it was pretty good, but what struck me was he was talking about George Romney, the governor of Michigan, going to Vietnam and... Carlin later elaborated how when George Romney said he was brainwashed 
which was you know God's truth by the CIA and the Pentagon over in Vietnam, came back and said, I think I was brainwashed over there. It killed him politically, which he noted on this program. It seems pretty clear to us that his son, Mitt, is not going to make that same mistake of telling the truth. Norm Crosby had some pretty good lines, noted that in America, you cannot vote. If you're mentally deficient, you can, however, get elected. Crosby said he thought in his experience this is the first time in a presidential election year that the American public want nobody to win. Jay Leno came out, got political right away, mentioned how, you know, you know, Mel Gibson gets a lot of criticism, but people don't know that he actually had an uncle who, who died in a concentration camp. He uh, apparently got drunk and fell out of one of the guard towers. He then talked about the news, topical news, something Mort Saul would do, something we would do, we, we, we'd like to think. Uh, mentioned how this, this new study shows that obesity may be caused by a virus, which, you know, Leno was somewhat skeptical about saying, oh, yeah, yeah. How come nobody in Africa seems to get that virus? He said, well, what if it is a virus? What are you going to do, call in fat to work? He talked about America's poor eating habits. He mentioned how there's this new double melt pizza over at Domino's. <laughs> you get people say, what, what would you like on top of that pizza? Oh, just, just put another pizza right on top of it there. Uh, Domino's was now offering a brownie tray. <laughs> he said, this ever happened to you? Have a slice of pizza? Boy, I think I'll just round that off with a tray of brownies. Noted how, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken, they're advertising they're not using trans fats anymore. And he said, you know, the real problem comes when you're eating food and the portions are in buckets. And as we mentioned, uh, Leno closed by, by not taking applause for himself, by referring to, to Mort Saul as George Bailey, as in It's a Wonderful Life, the greatest man on earth. And as the applause swelled, he then made his exit. Bill Maher certainly was full of praise for Mort as well, noted that uh, if it, when, when Mort did comedy, if you took all the jokes out of it, you'd still have an interesting speech. But he noted that, of course, Mort did not uh, take the jokes out. He noted that's why he would have to write the jokes on his hand, and he showed, he showed his hand, and he did have a bunch of things written in his palm, which was pretty funny. Bill Maher was, uh, was, uh, got on a tear about the, the new iPhone that was released this week, noting how people were lining up for it, said, oh, yeah, yeah, Americans won't get off their butts to go demonstrate against the war, but they'll line up for an iPhone. Poked fun of yuppies going, well, well, I have a decal on my car. What more can one man do? Anyway, that's a smattering of uh, some of the funny stuff. I didn't even begin to do it justice, but uh, I want to close with the fact that there was a guy standing out in front as I was waiting in line to get in the event. Obviously, a comic, a stand-up comic of some sort, didn't recognize who he was, but he was holding court with a series of pretty funny jokes. And like Bill Maher, I recall that because I wrote one of them down in my palm to refresh my memory. I think we'll just close with that one. Uh, two guys are walking around a big event. they got drinks in their hand. They both look kind of lost. They notice each other. First guy says, second one, what are you doing? Guy says, oh, I'm looking for my wife. I can't find her in this event. Just so many people. First guy says, yeah, I know what you mean. I can't find my wife either. So what's your wife look like? Well, she's slender. She's got blonde hair. She's got large breasts and kind of a nice derriere, if I do say so myself. Says the first guy, so what's your wife look like? First guy says, why don't we just concentrate on finding your wife? You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll be back after a break.
Perhaps some of you noticed on uh, KVIE on uh, Tuesday night, this last Tuesday, a Nova show. Nova, of course, is always excellent. Um, and they re-aired a, a documentary done some years back, I believe, titled This Old Pyramid, where uh, the episode revealed some of the ancient secrets of how the pyramids were built. It was This was done by actually attempting to build one. And according to my uh, promo guide sent to me every week as a subscriber, Egypt. the Egyptologist Mark Lehner and professional stonemason Roger Hopkins joined forces in the shadow of the Great Pyramid of Giza to put clever and sometimes bizarre pyramid construction theories to the test. I'm sure a lot of you saw this program, and we thought it'd be an interesting topic to, to spend a little time on. And uh, joining us now is an associate of uh, Egyptologist uh, Mark Lehner. That would be Matthew McCauley, who was one of the co-founders with the Ancient Egypt Research Associates, and he's here to talk about um, the organization and, and what, what they do. Matthew, welcome to Radio Parallax. Thanks, Doug. Glad to be here. Now, you got involved in studying ancient Egypt. How did that happen? Well, I was actually living in Canada at the time. Um, I'm Canadian by birth, and I got very interested really through reading some books uh, about a, an American psychic by the name of Edgar Cayce. Cayce had made some, I don't know, a variety of different kinds of predictions, but one a group of them focused on ancient Egypt and past lives and all kinds of uh, metaphysical notions about Egypt having to do with Atlantis. So these I was reading when I was in my late teens, 17 or 18 years old. And uh, so I finally wrote a letter to the Edgar Casey Foundation in Virginia Beach and received a, a quite a welcoming response from Hugh Casey, who was the son of Edgar Casey, and he encouraged me to continue my research into the, uh, into the ideas that, that his father had uh, propagated, and he put me in touch with a young anthropologist who they had just sponsored to go to Cairo by the name of uh, Mark Lehner. So I did write to Mark, and I subsequently went to Cairo and met with Mark, and it turns out that we had both sort of begun our quest into Egypt based on the ideas of uh, metaphysics and past lives and all of these kinds of notions. We were to find as we went along, though, that we were going to radically change our point of view and our basis for working, and this happened fairly rapidly in the, in, in, during the 70s. And uh, what did you get involved in doing over there? We gradually were able to uh, establish a relationship with the Antiquities Department. We were doing some small projects and eventually did a project that tested uh, the validity of one of the claims of Edgar Casey, which was that there was, in fact, this hall of records underneath the right paw of the Great Sphinx. And we were able to bring a crew from Stanford Research Institute and a team from Chicago called Recovery Systems International to the Sphinx, and we did remote sensing, resistivity, magnetometer surveys, and so on, to look to see whether or not there was, in fact, some sort of a cavity underneath the Sphinx that might hold this, uh, this library that uh, was allegedly there, according to the Edgar Cayce uh, predictions. And we, in fact, found that there was a, an, an apparent space underneath the right paw of the Sphinx. And at, at that time, uh, this would not happen in, in, in the present, but uh, during the 70s, we got special permission to, uh, to drill underneath the right paw of the Sphinx, and in fact did find a cavity there, an, an open space, but it turned out it was just a natural fissure in the rock. We were able to put a camera down inside and illuminate it and look at it. I'll be and it was really at that point that any last hope that, uh, that the Casey prediction was, was true 
was uh, dispelled, and from that point forward, the mindset shifted from taking uh, a belief and trying to find evidence to fit it to reversing an order in which we would look for the evidence as we found it and then build theories based on what we found, which is really the proper way to go about it scientifically. Well, people are endlessly fascinated with with the pyramids, and I think we should remind listeners that that at Giza, that's where you find the Great Pyramid. People are fascinated by how these things were constructed. I mean, they were amazing Herodotus when he was writing about it 500 B.C., one of the first uh, uh, tourist journals of, of traveling about. And people still are speculating how these things got constructed, and they did this program here on Nova. What, uh, what, what, what do you think about how they put these, they put them together? Well, the details of it are uh, uh, something that perhaps uh, Mark Lehner would be uh, in a better position to answer. But I can tell you that basically we know that the the stones that were used to build the pyramids came from quarries that were primarily located right there at Giza. We can see a large gap in the rock, a large hole that is about equal in volume to the number, uh, to the volume of the stones that were used in each of the pyramids. So we know where the quarries were, and we can see pretty clearly how far they had to be moved, uh, likely with ramps, and there are even presently still patches of the the topography that indicate where the ramps were. It's, um, I think, fairly well understood, and and there may be discussions that go on about the, the specifics of how the stones were positioned and moved and so on, but one thing to note is that the, well, the exterior of the Great Pyramid uh, was at one time you know, highly polished, a beautiful white Tura limestone, and the, the top layers of, uh, of the uh, stone are fairly regular. The interior of the pyramid, uh, with the exception of the chambers, the, the king's chamber and the queen's chamber, um, the, the, the construction of the pyramid is pretty haphazard. Uh, there are stones and mortar and all kinds of things just sort of jumbled. Um, so it, it, it wasn't quite as symmetric a process as it might appear from the exterior. That is the, the popular image that these things are amazingly constructed and that there must be something very very suspiciously perhaps supernatural or people have speculated alien involvement, all sorts of crazy theories. If you look at them closely, they're, they're clearly man-made and, and efforts were made to, to uh, have precision where it was needed and where it wasn't needed, where, the, where they could do it as sort of a, you know, a fill, um, that's exactly what they did. Well, Matthew, you're going to have to have you come back on the show and talk more about this. I was lucky to be able to travel to Egypt myself once in 1998. I was impressed by all of these these pyramids. The one that Saqqara, the step pyramid, the ziggurat, I think is still sort of very, uh, very photogenic. But it impressed me that one of the original pyramids, they were building wrong and it sort of collapsed and it taught them a lot about, about constructions of these things. The Bent Pyramid, I guess. Yes. The, there were a number of pyramids that came before the pyramids at Giza, and there were, uh, they were a learning process. Uh, where the angles were too steep, uh, where they began uh, at too great a slope and then had to taper off. It's pretty well understood in Egyptology that, that there was a great learning carried forward from every pyramid project. And Giza really is the pinnacle of that learning. Well, Matthew, you you are going to have to come back. There's a lot to talk about when it comes to Egypt, but uh, before we go, anything you'd like to just add about our topic? Well, I think it would be fun to talk again, and and there are a number of ways in which the chronology of construction of the pyramids and the Sphinx and the Valley Temple and the Sphinx Temple um, have really been refined to the point where we can see stepwise how they move through quarrying and building each of the monuments. It's it's quite well understood uh, with respect to... um, uh, with respect to time. 
Fair enough. And when you come back, I want to talk about uh, about the finding of the mummy of Queen Hatshepsut, which we're not, which is a whole subject in itself. Okay, terrific. Matthew McCauley, one of the co-founders of the Ancient Egypt Research Associates. Uh, happy to have you speak with us, and, and we'll and we'll talk again. Thanks, Doug. It was a pleasure. Now, if I had known that line of When, uh, when Matthew comes back, we're going to have to clear up a couple uh, misconceptions, I think, that we might trace back to Steve Martin. Uh, you know, we're, we're pretty sure King Tut was not, in fact, born in Arizona. And not to diminish the gravity of our, of our previous talk, but <laughs> McMillan just could not resist using that as a bit of bumper music. And in uh, another story related to ancient history, and, and uh, I guess you'd say guests on this program, we would note that... Uh, According to the UC Davis News Service, the success of wheat as a food crop can be traced through thousands of years of genetic change that occurred as wheat was domesticated for human use. This comes from the cover article of the current issue of the journal Science, and this features a story written by UC Davis plant scientists Jorge Dubkovsky and Jan Dvorak. We, of course, uh, spoke to Dr. Dubkovsky about wheat genetics a few weeks back. One might argue that this is the most important plant to human beings as it feeds more of us than any other. Anyway, we would refer you to Nature Magazine and to our own archives uh, for our discussion with Dr. Dubkovsky, who, of course, has to come back to talk about appearing in science, which is, of course, one of the world's premier scientific journals. Chris, this marks, this marks two weeks in a row. We scooped New Scientist magazine with our article about elephant communication uh, uh, some time ago, and we've managed to beat uh, science to the punch about wheat genetics. I don't mind saying we're quite tickled by this. And in some follow-up on the story we did uh, on last week's program about the thought of removing the cables from the back of Half Dome because someone did get uh, was fatally injured, Climbing Half Dome. Well, apparently over in Hawaii now, they're talking about, uh, you know, getting rid of the bikes that allow you to ride down Maui's 10,000-foot-high Haleakala Volcano. Well, they're not talking about eliminating it all together, but they're considering whether they should restrict the number of biking tours, the number of bikes in each group, and the spacing of the bikes. According to the article in the B, within the past several months, a man died of a heart attack after hitting his head during a downhill ride. A woman was killed when she rode off the edge of the road, and a bicycle tour leader severely injured his leg and hip when he careened into lava rock. I mean, as far as we're concerned, if you're going to take a bicycle 10,000 feet down a volcano, well, bad things could happen. I mean, this article mentions a 13-year-old boy cut up his knee and side when he failed to negotiate a turn. Well, yes, when you fail to negotiate a turn on a bicycle, you, you can get scraped up. This can happen anywhere. Anyway, when I was in, uh, in Maui a few years back, I took that bike tour. It's, it's a great thing to do. It's really fun. It's very scenic. It's, it's a very cool thing, and I hope they can uh, you know, find a way to make peace with the fact that some... Tourists are going to get hurt. You know, as they say, uh, a ship in a harbor is safe. 
but that's not what ships are for. And in a considerably more discouraging news story relating uh, to uh, roads in exotic places, we have the following. China has begun paving a path up Mount Everest to make the trek easier for bearers of the 2008 Olympic torch. The Chinese news agency Xinhua said the 67-mile route to Kuomalongma Base Camp would become a blacktop highway fenced by undulating guardrails. China plans the longest Olympic torch journey in history, an 85,000-mile, 130-day route that spans five continents and goes up and down Mount Everest before ending in Beijing. Boy, you thought Chairman Mao's long march was an ordeal. Of course, it hasn't gone unnoticed that the inclusion of the mountain, which is on the border between Tibet and Nepal, is seen as China's way of demonstrating its sovereignty over Tibet, which it has occupied since 1951. The paving project came as a surprise to environmentalist groups, which had no immediate comment. I've not personally been to the, uh, the Chinese side of uh, Mount Everest or Koma Longma, but I did go through Sagarmatha National Park in Nepal, headed up in the general direction of the Everest base camp uh, on the... Um, south side of the mountain. I must say the great adventure of of that journey was the fact that you had to have a backpack and clamber up uh, trails to get where you needed to go. The idea of a 67-mile blacktopped highway fenced with guardrails is very depressing. All right, final item which we do not have time for would be the current issue of Rolling Stone's excellent article by contributing editor Tom Dickinson which exposes the Bush administration's secret campaign to deny global warming. It's a hell of a good article, and you know, let's try and get Tim Dickinson to talk about it uh, on next week's program. We'll, we'll give it a shot. We'd also note in closing that uh, the current issue of Time magazine with John Kennedy on the cover features a point-counterpoint about his assassination featuring Vince Bugliosi and David Talbot. We had Mr. Bugliosi on this program a few weeks back, and we expect that we'll be able to bring you Mr. Talbot as well in the weeks to come. Stay tuned for that. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. Our thanks to Matthew McCauley and Mark Evanier, both of which we hope we'll have on again. We'll see you next week at the same time.